0: Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One.
1: This episode is brought to you by Huggies Little Movers. Huggies knows that babies come in all shapes and sizes, and your tushies do too. Huggies Little Movers is their best-fitting diaper ever with its curved and stretchy fit. Babies, no matter what kind of butt you've got, you'll feel comfy while your mushy little tushy wiggles and jiggles all around. Huggies Little Movers are curved with up to 12-hour protection against leaks. Get your baby butt in Huggies Best Fitting Diaper, Huggies Little Movers. We got you, baby. Let's face it, in today's uncertain times, simple conversations about your health can have powerful results.
0: There's something you are likely eating every day. It can negatively affect your waistline, complexion, and overall
1: health. On the Dr. Gundry podcast, Stephen Gundry, a renowned cardiothoracic surgeon and New York Times best-selling author, cuts through the BS to help you make better health choices.
0: You have the ability to heal yourself if you give yourself the right ingredients to do it with.
1: Dr. Gundry has spent the last 20 years empowering people around the world to help reverse and prevent some of our most serious ailments through the power of diet and lifestyle changes. You will change 90% of you. You will be a brand new you. Tune in to the Dr. Gundry podcast to start your health journey. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and anywhere you get your podcasts.
0: Because I'm Dr. Gundry, and I'm always looking out for you. I think a lot of people are aware that we're spending altogether too much time on our screens, right? And one of the things people are concerned about is eye strain from blue light damage. Eye strain from blue light damage may be leading to what we call digital eye strain. Symptoms of eye strain, blurred vision, headaches, dry, watery eyes. For some, it could even mean heightened anxiety, depression, low energy Well, Blue Blocks was created to fix this problem and block out the blue light with high-quality lenses. They're beautiful uh, frames also. They really do a good job. Unlike other types of blue light glasses, Blue Blocks are evidence-backed and made under optics laboratory conditions in Australia. The founders were unhappy with the quality and lack of science behind leading blue light-blocking glasses brands. Other companies were mass-producing, non-evidence-based, backed products in China with no understanding about how light impacts our health. Blue Blocks, B-L-U-B-L-O-X, was created to change this with high-quality lenses for daytime, nighttime, and for color therapy exactly in line with the suggested peer-reviewed academic literature. They have over 40 hip frames. They really are nice and come in prescription, non-prescription, and readers. So they have frames for every need. That's right. You can get a prescription reader with the Blue Block. Blue Blocks is also giving back by working in partnership with Restoring Vision in their Buy One Gift One campaign. For each pair of Blue Blocks glasses purchased, they donate a pair of reading glasses to someone in need. Get your energy back, sleep better, and block out the unhealthy effects of blue light with Blue Blocks. Get free shipping worldwide and 15% off by going to blueblocks.com slash Drew or enter code Drew at checkout. That is com slash Drew for 15% off or just use that code Drew for the same 15% off. Do it now. everybody welcome to dr drew podcast uh again keep supporting those that support us and don't forget to go to drdrew.com so the streaming show we're doing also instagram uh, dr drew pinsky i gave some updates on my experience with coronavirus which is still an experience underway um it, i can only liken it to like a traumatic brain injury with intermittent shortness of breath <laughs> if you put those two things together that's the glory of uh of uh of coronavirus also you'll notice i have word finding difficulty and you know, i'll sort of glitch here and there but Generally, I'm getting better. Uh, every day is a little better, but I can't tolerate my normal activities, and that drives me crazy. But I've, uh, I'm have i looking forward to today's interview. Nevertheless, I've invited back Gleb Zaburski, Gleb's, Gleb's newest book, Resilience, Adapt and Plan for the New Abnormal of the COVID-19 Coronavirus Pandemic. Past books are Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering, pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters, also Pro-Truth, A Practical Translation, plan for putting truth back into politics uh and of course the website is disaster avoidance experts.com you can follow gleb on twitter gleb gleb underscore cybersky t-s-i-p-u-r-s-k-y gleb welcome back
2: thank you so much for, for inviting me back dr drew i'm excited to be here uh,
0: we're excited to have you one of our favorite guests uh, Again, uh, Gleb has over 20 years of experience empowering leaders and organizations to avoid business disasters. He uses evidence-based approach to really cognitive sciences. And uh, that's kind of what I wanted to go back around on today, if you don't mind. I'm sort of interested in more your old book, Pro-Truth, and how, I'm kind of interested, I don't think we talked about this last time, how there is collective... Okay, here's my here's my COVID stuff. Now, my my word finding. Um, What's that, Gary? No, no. Well, yeah, I want to talk about collective cognitive distance for sure, but I want to talk about uh, collective sense making. In in other words, in in a setting, we're evolved in our environment of evolutionary adaptedness to be able to make sense of stresses to our population, like a tribe has a tidal wave or something. And that tribe has very characteristic ways of coming to an understanding of what's, to, what's going on and what to be done about it. But I feel like those evolutionary sort of proclivities of sense-making or group sense-making and group planning has spiraled out of control in today's yeah. world with the Internet in some kind sort of crazy way. And I'm wondering what, what you think about that.
2: I think you're absolutely right, Dr. Drew. So here's the problem. The tribalism that you're talking about is fundamentally at the core of what I talk about in The Pro-Truth, as well as my new book on Resilience, Adapt and Plan to the New Abnormal, the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. But the tribalism is meant for 15 people to 150 people the circle of people with whom we can actually hold in our mind easily and with whom we can hold relationships
0: and, and, and communicate is, with in some sort of direct yes, way with this, that's
2: what the relationships are with right? this evolved
0: mechanism we call language, right? Exactly. Yeah. And yeah.
2: communication yeah. is relationships yeah. are about communication. So okay. All of that is about the same. So you, you 150 people is about the maximum with whom we can effectively establish meaningful relationships. And right now, we are in a country of 330 million people. (laughs) What? But
0: but we're communicating regularly with an internet of 3 billion, which is even worse.
2: Which is even worse, exactly. And so, you know, perhaps a little bit fewer uh, Americans now after COVID has struck such deadly blows, but still, huge numbers of people. And so, with the internet, what has that created? That has created numerous tribes. Now, think about what happened previously to the internet. Everyone had approximately the same sources of information. You have the three main TV national news channels, and then you had local news and some newspapers.
0: Let me hold you you right there, because I I know there's more to evolve in this conversation from that. but, But it seemed like when those three major outlets knew they were the source of information, they held in esteem or as some sort of professional standard That they wanted to get the information right because they were the source. That's broken down completely,
2: it seems like. That's broken down completely. And here's the critical thing. When they had strict editorial standards. Maybe they had a little bit of a left slant or a right slant, each different network, but they had the same basic editorial high standards for truthfulness. Mm -hmm. You had approximately the same information with slightly different slants presented to the audience. So all Americans together, because of that communication could perceive themselves to be part of the same tribe, the same nation, and that was a huge nation, but it depended on that language that you very rightly uh, expressed was is so critical for our relationships. We had a relationship to those newspapers, to those reporters who were providing that information. And, who and, are, and to, for, be,
0: our, to, to be fair, people always talked about Walter Cronkite as their trusted relationship, somebody they could exactly. turn to every night. And, but and, but let me let me again, I, I don't want to parse this out too much because I know you're building a case here, but but. Back in the 1850s and 1860s, we had newspapers that were very much tribal back then. they They literally, you would not, if you read one paper and then read the other from the other party, you literally don't know if you're reading about the same event. I mean, I, for instance, the yep. uh, Abraham Lincoln had to go back and read from both the right and the left the transcripts mm-hmm. of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, and he <laughs> collated the two together to give the, what he felt was the actual representation mm-hmm. of what happened. So yep. we've been through periods like this before. I wonder if the newspaper was a technological advantage then that broke down in a similar way.
2: The newspaper created tribes around the people who read the newspapers. The the newspapers created, the people subscribed to newspapers. So they all read the same newspaper. You felt like you were part of the same tribe and newspapers were usually affiliated with a certain political party, So that was definitely very tribal. But that was a different rural country where we couldn't coordinate and organize like the internet enabled us to coordinate and organize. Oh, interesting. what happened after with this breakdown of the media ecosystem with the internet coming around people could find like-minded sources of information that did not hold any editorial standards you know joe blow on the street can publish a blog and eventually get you know millions and millions of followers well joe joe
0: re- manic psychotic delusional uh, writer yes. can can come up with all kinds of stuff
2: exactly and the thing is here's the Bad, bad thing about us as human beings. We don't, we're not evolved to be truth seekers. That's not our function. We are evolved fundamentally. We are driven by emotions. Mm. So people pay attention to what is emotionally salient. That's Uh. called attentional bias. Uh So there's one of the many cognitive biases from which we suffer. We pay attention to what's emotionally very important in front of us. Like you, you, after getting COVID, are paying much more attention to COVID, sure. and other people are paying much more attention to what's emotionally salient. Yeah. So Joe Schmo, who doesn't have high editorial standards, can make the most emotionally compelling claims compared to facts. And then we have clear research showing this. So lies spread on Twitter as much as 10 times faster than the truth. Because people can lie in um, emotionally salient way. Can, can I ask a, a,
0: a technical question I've had? I, yeah, meant sure. to ask. I may have asked it last time, but I, I didn't get it. What's the difference between using emotional salience and persuasion?
2: You can persuade somebody with logic and reason. You can persuade somebody with emotions. Mm. So persuasion is a process. Emotional salience is about emotions. Okay. Those are distinct uh, things. You can pr- also be... Like a lawyer in a court of law persuades someone with arguments and facts. But it, it
0: feels like logic is not very persuasive for people these days. In other words, coming up with logic to a flat earther, they will just continue to come up with cognitive distortions to defend their position, even if you convince them of a particular siloed topic is not the case and you show them the evidence and you convince them, they'll, they'll backfire and then double down somewhere else.
2: Right, that's the you're talking about the backfire effect. So yes, definitely. And that has come after it has become acceptable in our society to lie and deceive and sleep. <laughs> that's that, just, that's just the that's case. Too it much. was not acceptable wow. after Walter after Walter when Walter Cronkite was the source of authority. Wow. That was not something that was acceptable.
0: Well, in a weird said, way, you're making a moral argument here that we need to address the morality in this country a little bit, or at least, of we'll, course, when to. of okay, course, okay, I didn't. That doesn't to, that doesn't occur to me immediately in the context of talking about cognitive distortions.
2: Yes, if we want to address truth, so it's what my book "Pro Truth: A Pragmatic Plan to Put Truth Back into Politics" is about. It talks about how, what we need to do if we want to address lies in the society, misleading information, so we don't have things like the Capitol attack on January 6th, you know, not to politicize this, but clearly that was a result of extensive, extensive lies and deceptions. So if we don't want stuff like that in this country, and I hope all true patriots like myself and like you don't want that, then we need to make sure to bring back the power of truthfulness and make that what is critical to us. So I, I, I
0: feel like any extremism is sort of built on lies and distortion. You know,
2: this is true. Yeah. Any extremism yeah. in any so, sort of way, because the right. world, here's the, here's the trick. Extremists make the world extremely simple. Mm. And we, as human beings, we like simplicity. Mm. Our mind goes towards simplicity. We like when vote for politicians who talk in bullet points and talking, talking points, we, absorb advertisements that are 30 seconds and they influence us. That is just unfortunately a quality of us that if we want to resist this cognitive bias, this narrative, what's called the narrative fallacy, we need to understand that the world does not make sense. The the, world is not simple. The world is very complex and contradictory. Define the narrative fallacy
0: because I feel like the press, when they jump the shark or jump the rail, however you want to look at it, they wedded themselves to narratives, and I, <laughs> I was working at CNN when that happened, and I thought, no, 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 you don't, you don't, you don't fit a complex world into a narrative, you just tell the facts. Talk about yeah. the narrative fallacy.
2: The narrative fallacy is exactly what you're talking about. When we hear a story, a narrative – We intuitively accept it. We're not skeptical of it. That is how information gets into us. That's very emotional. So, when you hear a story about a protagonist, you know, a heroic archetype who overcomes troubles and is then successful and gets the girl or the boy, if this happens to the protagonist as a girl, then that is a typical narrative, a coming of age narrative, and there's a specific, and there are many, many other archetypal narratives that reporters, politicians, advertisers feed us into. And we like that. Our intuitions, our gut reactions like that. And they accept that information without questioning it, unless you train yourself to address these cognitive biases. Because like you said, the world is actually much more complex and contradictory. It feels to us like it shouldn't be. So when we hear that the world is contradictory, complex, We intuitively reject that information. Our minds reject that information. They seek simple explanations. We don't want to work hard. Our mind, like I talk about in my books, is a lazy mind. It's a very lazy mind. So we want to spend as little energy, cognitive energy as possible. That's our intuition. That's how our brain process works. And that causes us to really make bad mistakes about what we believe is true, whether it's about politics or about covid which is why so many people make mistakes about COVID and suffer cognitive dissonance. But that's what the narrative fallacy is about.
0: Okay, because there's a bunch of stuff I want to swing back around on. Um, It's interesting. I've heard people recently start to make evolutionary arguments about the energy associated with – what's. our, 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 say, yeah, the cognitive processing, exactly. We, we have cognitive inefficiency specifically because the brain requires so much energy to do something yep. more. So we evolved sort of the other way to preserve energy. Kind of a just-so argument, but I, it's interesting I've heard that a bit lately. Um, so I want to circle back to this, narr- not the narrative fallacy so much, but the lazy mind, which, which mm-hmm. I, I believe I had a lazy mind when I hit college. I was not dumb uh, but I but I was I, I could well I went to a school that kicked my ass and and g- kicked my ass on a daily basis where I was doing 5 hours of critical reasoning and problem solving every day. And awesome. at the end of 4 years of having my ass handed to me, my brain very naturally used critical <laughs> reasoning and continues I hope until this very day. And and some people have that capacity straight away. They they have it naturally. I did not. I had the, I had the potential but I had to be trained into it. I don't see where we're training anybody to do that anymore. Is that part of the problem?
2: It's definitely part of the problem. But and in you, you have a lot of colleges that are swinging more toward preparing people for work as opposed to critical reasoning, yeah. logical thinking. So yeah. when people go to college. It's much more of here's what you do to be a good corporate citizen. Yeah. Here's what you do to work to, to be in the workforce, as opposed to here's how you question structures of society and stru- and here is how you ask questions that might be uncomfortable for your boss <laughs> and uh, kind of critical reasoning. That's what right. critical reasoning is about. It's about questioning assumptions and and,
0: and, pr- pro- and problems or thought. It's about it's about it's about. You know, for myself, I just think of it more as like solving math problems or sci- solving, mm-hmm. you know, scientific issues. It's yes. it's staying with the problem until you have a well thought out theoretical frame that explains what you're thinking about, and you're then a, then right. an analysis, and then in a way to an, analyze your own thinking.
2: The questions actually come at the beginning yeah. because if you. Look at the problem. The typical way to solve a problem is usually not the right way. Yeah. It's very often not the right way. Yeah. So when you look at a problem and try to, you know, if you have a hammer and you think everything is a nail, yeah. that's going to be a bad approach yeah. to problem solving. So yeah. you need to start by asking. Is there a questions.
0: name for that cognitive distortion? Yeah. Hammer. The, is there a name for the hammer nail distortion?
2: The tool.
0: Generalization uh, or think, something?
2: Uh, no, it's the. Oh, it's the, something like the tool use fallacy, <laughs> okay, totally where done. when you have a tool, you assume that that's the right tool to use in a certain situation. Got it. When you have, you know, and the same thing applies to philosophical frameworks or ideological frameworks. People perceive their framework as the only right framework, and they interpret the world through that framework, and then they reject any facts, any Boy, information that's, a, that's real a major, that does fit it.
0: That is a major problem problem today don't you think yep absolutely and that
2: is part of the narrative fallacy where people have that narrative in their heads this is how the world works they have in their heads that's what they perceive this is the way the world works and then they reject any information that contradicts their perceptions that the world works this way because they suffer from cognitive dissonance if they don't otherwise they are wrong and you know nobody likes to be wrong you have to train yourself to be wrong. You know how many years I tra- I had to train myself before I started liking the sense of learning that I'm wrong. Well, that is a very hard thing to learn to like and to learn to appreciate. It's intuitive for us to reject that. But again, the four years that you spent on critical reasoning at the college that takes your butt, that is where it helps to have that basis to learn to like being wrong and being proven that, hey, you know, somebody else is right. That means I can update my perspective and have a better way of thinking about things. Well,
0: And I sort of started anticipating being wrong all the time when a chemistry professor sort of got close to my face one day and said, I don't want to know what you know. I want to get to the point where I find out what you don't know. And then I want you to start working. That there's where I want you to start thinking is where you don't know. What you know I could care less about. I want to know what you do with what you don't know. And I thought – oh, that's what Excellent. this is going to be, okay.
2: <laughs> Excellent. That's, that's a very insightful kind of that's, – that's what growth is. When you think about personal growth, it's what you don't know and what you don't do well, and that's where you improve. Yeah. If you stay where you're comfortable with what you know, then you don't grow. <laughs> you know? Yeah.
0: So how yeah. do we deal with that, the, the ideological rigidity and the unwillingness to be wrong and the, you know, the avoidance of cognitive dissonance? What is there a strategy for dealing with that?
2: Absolutely. So the first thing to realize is that this is a nonpartisan issue. Oh, yeah. Because when I'm talking about this stuff, it's, it's, you know, people who are partisan Was, is he on the right? Is he on the left? Where is he?
0: Well, and I, I, I got to tell you because, a, yeah, because I'm in the middle, I, I see it on both sides. I see it as clear as day. There and, you go. It, and it's yes, very exactly. distressing to, to it's, watch it's both it. Sides. Yeah.
2: It's on both sides. Yeah. So what you have to first, agree on is this is not these are nonpartisan behaviors they're just they are
0: they're different though in terms of what they're doing each side
2: they are yeah So we have to agree that polarization is a harmful thing for our society. Yeah. And therefore, polarization, we can see, you know, it's d- super destructive. I mean, the capital riots are just one example. The gridlock in Congress, there's so much of the local level, the conflicts. so oh, just much the,
0: the The mess in Portland and, and uh, Seattle. Oh, yes, so,
2: yeah. Exactly, the mess in Portland and Seattle, all of those local level conflicts, we don't want that. That's yeah. bad. Yeah, it's bad. So Thank if you. We, if we don't want that, if we don't want all the lies on Facebook and Twitter, then we need to, as a country, as individuals, adopt certain standards of behavior, morally, ethically, truthful behavior. And there, the Pro-Truth, a pragmatic plan to put truth back into politics, talks about the Pro-Truth Pledge, which is at protruthpledge.org, which is a set of 12 behaviors that research has shown are correlated with truthfulness. So that's a very easy standard for folks who care about well,
0: it. Well, it, it isn't though, right? If people have difficulty being – listen, I, I know I have to deal with, this with drug addicts all the time, getting them to be rigorously honest. You're not just talking about being sort of honest. You're talking about being yeah. rigorously honest, and that's hard for people.
2: That is hard for people, and I'm not saying it's an easy thing to do, but it's simple. Yeah. It's simple but not easy. So that's the difference that I'm drawing. It's very simple. It's very clear. We know what needs to be done. So if we take a look for anyone who goes to protruthpledge.org, you can sign it right now and commit to truthfulness. Behaviors like fact-check information to confirm it's true before accepting it internally as true and sharing it with others. (laughs) Things like acknowledging when others share true information, even when you disagree otherwise. So you, you can agree on facts, even if you disagree on values. Then celebrate those who retract incorrect statements and update their beliefs toward the truth is wouldn't it be wonderful if we don't criticize people as (laughs) flip-floppers when they update their beliefs or or liars or you're called a liar it's crazy you just got something wrong and that's lying it's like no, no no i just got it wrong that's all yeah and you're saying oh now i have more information now i changed my mind when you change your mind it doesn't mean that you're a liar it that's the way that Everyone should work. When you get more information, you should change your mind because this new information may contradict all the, all the information. But it's very not intuitive. So, so, so those,
0: we're talking about updating our priors, right? Exactly, updating we're our trying, priors.
2: Talking about. Uptaking our priors, Bayesian thinking, probabilistic thinking. I was thinking. just going to say, help
0: people understand Bayesian reasoning. That's not that intuitive. Yes. That's a thing that's not intuitive for people at it is all. Not,
2: it is definitely not intuitive. Go ahead. Tell so them about probabilistic that. probabilistic thinking is about how we perceive the world. Our intuition, our gut reaction, that evolutionary environment, evolved to cause us to perceive the world as black and white, right and wrong, defense or offense, withdraw or, uh, or come closer.
0: And, and, and even those is, things didn't have equal valence. Danger higher than good things, you know, right? Yes, yes, danger. Loss.
2: We definitely want to avoid loss and we want to go toward gain. Yeah. Yeah. So with that's the black and white thinking. That's not the right way of, that's not how the world works. The world is actually shades of gray. Yeah. You know, there's no. Not everyone who is on the right or left are right. There's sometimes people who are on the right are more correct in certain situations. Sometimes people who are on the left are more correct in certain situations. We're going to politics. So most of the time, the correct answer is in the middle, yeah. closer to the middle, but not necessarily at the exact middle. But that's not and technically
0: that, Bayesian. T- talk, talk about Bayesian reasoning.
2: Yes. So I'm, I'm getting there. Okay, okay, so Bayesian <laughs> reasoning talks about how we need to realize the world is complex Yeah. And once we have settled on a certain perspective on the world, where we decide you know it's ten percent black and you know ninety percent white, when we get additional information, he's
0: not talking about race. Get, he's talking about probabilities.
2: I'm talking about probabilities and probabilistic thinking <laughs> yes. is building up to Bayesian reasoning. Yes. <laughs> so Bayesian reasoning, you are talking about updating your priors. You have yeah. prior at the ten to ninety, and then you get new information, and then you update your beliefs toward that new information so we're talking about probabilistic thinking right now yeah and bayesian thinking is a little bit more complex and advanced i'm not sure if we want to go into it here
0: (laughs) well what is therapy exactly well it's whatever you need it to be and what you and the therapist co-create together But it can address a lot of things, depression, anxiety, stress, a relationship. It's time to stop being ashamed of being a normal human being and getting normal medical care. Um, Listen, you deserve to be happy and thrive. BetterHelp, which I've just heard wonderful things about, is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. The bar is so low now. It's so easy to sign up. We're all used to using Zoom and phones and technologies. And it's much more affordable than in-person therapy. You can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what therapy is all about. It may or may not be for you, but it's worth looking into because, well, you are your greatest asset. The Dr. Drew Podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and we give our listeners 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com Drew. Again, that is Better help com slash drew as a leader in the CBD industry. Hemp fusion is committed to providing high quality THC free CBD oil products. Whether your new year's resolution is gunning for a raise or an Olympic gold medal, you need to stay at the top of your game. And with so many world-class professional athletes turning to hemp fusion, you can be sure you're getting a safe, clean product from tinctures to topicals to capsules. They've got something for everyone Again, I've used a lot of tinctures for sleep and topicals for joint aches. You should, too. To make it even easier to accomplish your New Year's resolution, Hemp Fusion is offering our listeners 20% off your purchase when you use the promo code DREW at checkout. Once again, that is Hemp Fusion, H-E-M-P-F-U-S-I-O-N, HempFusion.com, promo code DREW, for 20% off your order of premium CBD oil products from Hemp Fusion. Well, can, can, I, I've never had anybody um, bring it down to a cartoon level effectively. Can you do it?
2: Bayesian thinking, hmm, let me think about it.
0: Is, is a very, so, it's a very formal, specific kind of thinking. It has, has equations associated with
2: it. Yes, it, it has equations associated. Yeah. The probabilistic thinking is a simplified way that I think is actually the best cartoon form. All right, so, so just and, that's the, t- and that is the way that... I like to talk about it to folks. And it's kind of the way I, I think of it too. Yeah. And, yeah and so, I, I, clients, I, let me... uh, use it. So, that's, that's yeah. what I encourage people to do to use probabilistic thinking. If they want something much more complex, Bayesian reasoning goes into a formula. Yeah. So, where you look at, hey, here are certain facts. Here is how, is specifically how much you should update your beliefs. Based on this new information. Right. And that has a mathematical association with it. Right. So here's the weight of your information that depends on your previous confidence in this information and the accuracy of that information. Then the new information, how confident you are about that and how what how far it is from your old information. And then that shows you as a formula exactly how far you should update your beliefs so, and that's for a more complex that's something like an organizational process so when i work with organizations that are clients that need to make a really big strategic shift that's more calculated
0: calculate. and, and, and a lot of people, people also use the use the calculations to see how they compare with their probabilistic intuitions too it's yes, uh, they're sort absolutely. of weighing these things let me give you my latest bayesian uh, experience and probabilistic thinking. Uh when when I got sick, people were like, Were you are you scared? Are you scared? Are you scared? And and when I was sick, I was just sort of ignored those statements because I was like mm. I, I didn't like it didn't like process. And then about two weeks later I was sort of coming out of it, and I started looking back and people started asking again, Were you scared? And I thought, why would I be scared? I, I my profile of a ninety-nine percent survival, one percent fatality. That's that's effectively zero from where I'm sitting. I mean, yeah, it happens, but it's a 1% chance. I said, look, when I uh, had my prostate out for prostate cancer, the do- the surgeon sat down and said, you have a 90% chance of cure. That's a doctor telling you you're cured. And yet it's 10 times more risk than, than the risk from the COVID, which was 99% probability of no fatality. Now, probability of morbidity, which people don't talk about, and I got tons of morbidity. Yeah, I got tons of morbidity. I got that. And in terms of updating the priors, at the time I was thinking, well, I want to stay out of the hospital because if I go into the hospital, I'm in a new category at that point. Now the data is different. Mm. Now I have a 12% probability of fatality or ICU, that kind of thing. And so staying out of the hospital for me was sort of a goal to see if I could stay in my Bayesian previous risk mm-hmm. analysis, which I did, which I successfully did. And uh, so it's interesting is that these things people don't think probabilistically. Like they hear 1% and they go, that's me. It's going to happen to me. It's like, no, 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 1% not going to happen to you. <laughs> it's not gonna... And we as physicians, when we tell people 90% or 99%, we're telling them not to worry about it. That's what we mean when we <laughs> say that. So yeah. I found that. F- and, and the press, again, back to your narrative fallacies, the narrative fallacy is, it could happen to you. Here's a 24-year-old that died. Here's a, ah, ah, here it comes. It's you. It's you. And they are pounding that into people's heads. And so, to your point, the emotional narrative is what sticks yes. and they're not doing any probabilistic assessments. They just stop You're thinking.
2: You're absolutely right, Drew. And this is what I especially hate in press stories about this is, you know, ninety-nine old year old grandmother miraculously survives COVID. (laughs) Right. You know?
0: (laughs) I give you that story and then the twenty two year old that died. Those are the two stories I'm gonna tell you.
2: Eighty-five (laughs) percent of ninety-nine year old grandmothers survive COVID. So for that age category the fatality is fifteen percent. Yeah. But that means that the most people, so one one out of six Die. That means yeah. five out of six survive. Yep. So okay. So that means that if if all everyone in your nuclear family had and was 99 years old and had COVID, one person would die. Yeah. But. It's not that there, the five would survive. So would you write press stories about all five of them?
0: Miraculous. Say, it's a miraculous. miraculous. And and so right. so it's it's staggering the death rate. It's grim or it's miraculous. So these words they're 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 just harmful for people, and it's what yes. I was fighting back on in the beginning and got me in such trouble. Which I saw the panic coming. I saw the excesses of the press, and I saw that the press was essentially demanding the response of the Chinese communist government as the only potential viable response to the COVID outbreak. And, and they have kept that going to this day. Total lockdown, total shutdown. When in fact, once this thing breaks out, lockdowns actually makes things worse. But they, again, can't update their priors, can't think probabilistically, can't assess the numbers. So it, it's... Yeah,
2: the science definitely shows that just simply closing down is not really worth it from the perspective of human suffering. I well mean, and not worth it and it won't
0: work. I mean if you're if you're an island not like New Zealand at the beginning and you lock down, yeah. that works. But if you're a country the size of America and you already have one percent infected, it's not gonna work. It's not gonna work yeah, and it will cause we, things to be worse.
2: Right. It it's it will not be work as effectively. Right. What we do know is that it will slow things down, but is is that really worth the kind of costs? Exactly. So there are certain things that are exactly. maybe wise to do when there's an outbreak, like no indoor dining, where yeah. people have their masks off. No, so you know,
0: there's things you can do. Right. There's sensible things that don't increase suffering, aren't high risk, don't harm people. And yeah, wear a mask. For Christ's sake, why not? Yeah, <laughs> it's exactly. like, wear a damn mask. Stay yeah. a little distance from people. Trust me. You don't want this thing. I, I've been there. You don't it's, want it. Trust yeah. me. And uh, I think
2: the morbidity is definitely more scary in some ways than uh, you're, you're, death. I mean, and, the and long haulers.
0: Uh, I'm, I'm so, technically so, one right now. I, I'm five yeah. weeks out, and I'm having all kinds of neurological stuff. And, yeah, and my
2: dad, uh, who had COVID in uh, that March outbreak in New York City, he still has lung scarring. Oh, <laughs> I, I you know, suspect how, I have that, too. I
0: suspect yeah, I have it's, that.
2: It's more than 10 months, so I'm you know, worried yeah, about it. It's and
0: not being, again, that's kind of a nuanced idea as opposed to you're going to die. And, and that's so, not being discussed in the press. They're and not presenting. That's
2: really it. too bad because that that you know people who are long haulers, and I really hope you will recover quickly. But people who are long haulers, that consequence will be worse in some ways than the number of people yeah. who died because of the much number by higher numbers, numbers yeah. and the drain on the healthcare system, and workforce, and productivity. These well, are all very serious. I just issues.
0: just consider this: I volunteered to work in my ER before I got sick, and I got stonewalled on getting the vaccine, and then I got sick. Now I I couldn't tolerate maybe an hour or two in the ER or I need to go oh, lie geez. down you know I just can't do an eight hour shift so I'm no sure. good they've lost a a free thoroughly trained resource I, I just can't do it I just I'm not up yeah. for it I just I'm too sick but I, I'll get there I, I will get there it's just weird so, it's, it, and by the way we're now breaking down long haulers versus chronic COVID so long hauler goes from three weeks to three months and then the chronic COVID goes three months and beyond. Sort of a new nomenclature. So, uh, so I'm, we've we've drifted off topic. We did did we make the full argument here? Did we talk about all the distortions that are important to talk about, or are there more than need-
2: cognitive dissonance was the one thing we wanted to make? All sure right, go ahead, talk about it because we control. could we could do quite a
0: long dissertation on just that, right?
2: Sure. So, since we're talking about COVID nineteen, cognitive dissonance around COVID nineteen is a very important topic, where we as Americans tend to be very optimistic about the future. So, for example, here with these new strains, right, we're hearing. That about these new strains and we at the same time have vaccines so what the large majority of people are focusing on is the reality of vaccines and how great that is and they're not thinking about these new strains which are a pretty serious issue looking at the outbreak in the uk and south africa when the new strains became dominant cases doubled every two weeks So if we think about the current hospital load, which, like you said yourself, Dr. Drew, is very high. Hospitals are pretty loaded right now. Think about what happens if the new strains, indeed, as the CDC predicts, might become dominant as soon as March, then, you know, or April, something like that. But the CDC says as soon as March. What happens when the hospital load starts doubling every two? weeks. That's going to be pretty, pretty bad for our hospitals. And the vaccines will not be there yet because of the very slow vaccine rollout. So, but people are paying attention to the vaccines. They're not paying attention to these clear trend lines of these new strains and what that means for the healthcare system, which I think really needs a lot more resources. And there's so much of the government focus and the population focus is on the vaccines when we really should be strengthening the healthcare system in anticipation of the surge. And that's the and where people need to be preparing themselves, their businesses for this surge. That's one example of where people are rejecting information that doesn't, that's not optimistic, that doesn't fit their intuitions, their beliefs. Let, let me let course,
0: me let me push back a little bit on that on something I observed, which is there's a lot of either or thinking out there. Why can't we do both? Focus on the vaccine. And focus on strength. Yeah. There's a lot we of, there's a lo- it's, it's crazy. I, I see it going all this or all that. We are doing all vaccine. We're doing oh. all lockdown. It's like, no, 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 no. We can do 65 and above and we can do at risk workers. We could do both. Absol-
2: Shocking. Absolutely. Shocking. I, abso- <laughs> <It's> I absolutely <laughs> like, agree. We need yeah. to do, we need to continue focusing on the vaccines, but that should not be at all. The only story. Is, is there an either
0: or like- bias? I guess hmm? it's probably that. It's a black and white thing. Black and yes. white thing is probably the, narrative yep. black and white, yeah.
2: Exactly. Yep. So we talked about the black and white thinking. Yes, we there's too much of a focus right now on vaccination versus other measures which do not need at all to include serious total lockdowns because like you said it's we're not uh, New Zealand it's going they definitely you don't want to do indoor dining right. but you want to have schools open especially elementary schools that's definitely important and that's very hard for people to not have that and for children to not have that and, and by but, let me
0: just we'll give a little note on that I, i've heard that i said here's either or Either, either, and whatever. It's like let's get the teachers vaccinated. Let's look at adolescents and young adolescents whether they are should be getting the vaccine, and let's get on with it. And the teachers yep. go, "Oh no, no, we have to vaccinate all children. You will not be vaccinating grammar school age children. That will not no. happen. That will not yeah. happen." So, definitely, yeah. I,
2: I, I absolutely support that. Yeah, yep. it, it doesn't need to happen. Children survive go for COVID quite well. It's, it, it's really. <laughs> The teachers are the ones who we yeah. need to worry about. We need to vaccinate, and especially talking about the either or. I hate that the conversations about school are open everything yeah. K through sixteen or yeah. close everything. Yeah, yeah, that's just dumb. You know, K through five should be open. We know that kids under ten are much less likely to get COVID and to pass it on. And they have much more wonderful outcomes. And it's much harder for people, for parents to have K through five kids at home. Whereas those who oh, yeah. are, you know. So K6 for K12, you know, they can stay at home. They can do their own things, but K for five really needs to be open. Now, what you, the point I was making before is we really need to strengthen the hospitals. Right now, how much money is going to the hospitals? Very little. There are hospitals that are literally closing right now as we speak, because not nearly enough funding is going for them where they're taking care of people with COVID. And those, the, they don't have money to take care of people with COVID. They're not getting insurance payments from people with COVID. They're doing it for free, essentially, on the potential for future money. And they're not getting money from much more lucrative elective surgeries. So, if we want our national healthcare infrastructure to not collapse in March and April and May, when we will based on all evidence, we'll have a new surge. We really need to take care of our national health infrastructure.
0: Well, let me even pull back from your point a little bit and say that we've been ignoring it for quite some time, and that's one of the reasons we're in trouble. Yeah. We've allowed hospitals to close, to limit the number of beds, to maximize the financial efficiencies of the services that are delivered. We've really allowed the the bed resource to shrink uh, yes. I, I've been around, and that's one of the reasons we're in this problem. Let me, let me I'm going to go back to the uh, the truth. What's your website?
2: The truth? Oh, the pro truth pledge. pro truth pledge.
0: I am all for that, but I fear Excellent. oh my God, I, I, I don't understand how anybody couldn't be. And again, I, like I told you, I'm always therapeutically dealing with people that need to have rigorous honesty in order to survive. But it's hard for people, and I don't see the average person necessarily enthusiastically going after it, as I wish they would. But here's the next thought I have. Didn't religion help with that in the past? And are we going to have to have something like that to get people narratively and emotionally and whatever engaged in the need for better moral self-management?
2: I think there should be this national religion, which is essentially patriotism. It is patriotic to be truthful, which that is the what I think is critical for us to adopt. If we care about America, and this is literally true, if you want America's future to survive, you need to uphold truthfulness, not lies, not misinformation. People who are on your side and who lie, who misinform, who spread fake facts... They are destroying America, whether it's people on the left or people on the right. They are destroying America. They're creating more polarization, more lies, more hostility, more distrust, more disunity. And that's exactly what people in (laughs) Russia and China, well, the governments in Russia and China and so on, Iran, want to see. And that's terrible for us. So our future, our future as a country, the patriotic thing to do, is to be truthful and honest. And this needs to be the national religion, the civil religion, that we need to uphold truthfulness. So I hope you sign the pledge yourself, Dr. Drew, and uh, just go put put in your name, put in your email, and that's all. And I hope everyone goes to ProTruthPledge.org and signs it, because otherwise... How will we rebuild trust and truth in this country if we don't make a commitment and we don't tell our politicians that, hey, you need to take the Pro-Truth Pledge? Did you know that four Congress members already took the Pro-Truth Pledge and de- many dozens of state legislators?
0: Oh, that's and I'm nice. I'm talking
2: about, yeah, Republicans and Democrats. Where, what, state? what state?
0: What hmm? state? What state?
2: Of what? Legislators yeah. Of many states? Okay, good. Uh, you, you can go to the public figures page and see the the latest Pledge takers. So I think the latest Congress member who took the pledge was Gary Smith, a Republican from North Carolina. So he's a member of the U.S. House um, of Representatives. And there are, I think, Marsha, yeah, Greg Murphy, MD, he's an MD too. So I'm looking at the page right now. I think uh, Marsha Fudge, who is a currently who's a Democrat and who is currently in the House of Representatives, who will be the new uh, Secretary of the um, housing secretary in Biden's cabinet also took the pledge. Interesting. And a number of other politicians have taken the pledge, like I said, at cool. all levels. Over- Just don't expect Over- it from
0: Californians. I was kind of figuring that. But, any- but anyway, what, what is your country of origin?
2: My country of origin is called Moldova. Okay, it's a small country in Eastern Europe yes. that will, my parents left in 1991 when it was freed from Russian domination. Right. So, and, and those have, of you that
0: are 90 Day Fiance fans will recognize uh, <laughs> Gary's laughing. Will recognize Andre and Libby coming. Andre coming from Moldova, which seems like a very interesting, very interesting country. Um, yeah. How do the European countries deal with this? They seem mostly to be secular to me. Uh, although Moldova has a strong influence of the Eastern Orthodoxy, doesn't it?
2: They are secular, and they have much more focus in their countries on patriotism and truthfulness, and that is seen as really important in the public sphere. So to be patriotic... And to be truthful are much more aligned, whereas in the United States, those things have become disaligned, where patriotism is no longer strongly associated with truthfulness, mm. and that 's a terrible thing to not have patriotism associated with truthfulness because the that destroys. The country where we're in, if you're not patriotic, if you perceive yourself to be patriotic, but you're not truthful, well, you destroy the whole citizen community trust that makes a country a country. Because if you're not united as a country, then what are you? What are you? What are you? Exactly. Exactly. And that's what allow, that's what unfortunately a lot of countries that then allow dictators to take over happen. That's what happened in Germany before the Nazi takeover. So what happened in Portugal before the fascist takeover and what happened in a number of other countries, this disunity and this lack of a focus on truthfulness as part of being patriotic. And having left Eastern Europe, you know, I was 10 when I left Eastern Europe and I was very thankful that my parents left and partially one of the major reasons they left was that there was much more of Eastern Europe, especially Russia, this orientation toward propaganda mm. and this acceptance of lies and deceit mm-hmm. and misinformation mm-hmm. as a tool in the public sphere. And to see that happening more and more in the US, you know, a healthy democracy, which has definitely become less healthy in recent years is very very disturbing to me so looking at these trends that's one of the reasons i wrote the book pro truth a pragmatic plan to put truth back onto politics i'm very sensitive to these sorts of deceptions misinformation that eventually leads to authoritarianism in pretty much all cases where that has been the case where the we have had deception the misinformation democracy has died or is dying in the process, like it died in Russia and a number of other countries.
0: I, I thank you for saying all that. I think I think that is a really, really vivid point, and I hope people take it to heart. Before we wrap up, is there more to be said about cognitive dissonance? we were sort of going down that path about what is cognitive dissonance, how to know when you're in it, that kind of thing, and maybe what to do about the,
2: it. Yeah, one of the most important things in terms of cognitive dissonance is to understand that when I tell people that, you know, you shouldn't trust your gut, your intuitions will lie to you. They intuitively reject my inf- this information. They intuitively reject these ideas because it doesn't feel right in their gut, right? Yeah. To accept that it doesn't feel comfortable. And that's the thing. Comfort is the sensation of your gut telling you to do something. Your intuition, all of these things, is your gut telling you something is right, something is true. And it feels very cognitively dissonant. Cognitive dissonance is the feeling of fighting against your own mind. It feels very contradictory. It feel It's fighting against your gut. The, the cognitive dissonance is when you tell yourself that, hey, I might feel that something is true. But that does not necessarily at all mean it's true. I might feel that something is the right thing to do, but that doesn't necessarily all at all mean it's the right thing to do. When my wife criticizes me for the, you know leaving a mess, I might want to draw her attention to the fact that you know she left a mess the other day, and that will not lead to anything good, right. as I have learned. Right. Right. But that's the intuitive thing to do. That to build up and escalate these arguments and conflicts—that's what feels right to my intuition, to most people's intuition. That's why relationships. I, often believe, I believe you break mentioned the
0: same sort of conflict last time we spoke, which I find fascinating. But go,
2: go ahead, keep going. Yes, exactly. So that I, so I'm, <laughs> no. linking to, I'm linking it to—I'm linking it to folk, something that hope, I hope folks are familiar with. Yeah, yeah, These sorts of conflicts, and so it f- might feel like the right thing to do, but it's not the right thing to do at all. Yeah. Or you know, if you start teaching. Know, a uh, carton of ice cream, right? A yeah. gallon of ice cream. Did you know that a serving of ice cream is a cup of ice cream? So that's what it says in the carton. Cup of ice cream is a serving. Now, how easy is it to stick to a cup of ice cream right. when you start eating from a full carton no, of ice cream? I don't know a person who can do that. It's very hard to do because your gut tells you to go ahead and eat more and more and more. We're triggered by sugar. Our yeah. intuitions tell us it's, it's the right thing to do. But we've learned hopefully most of us, that we probably shouldn't start eating from a whole carton of ice cream unless we
0: intend to finish half the carton. (laughs) Right. Not that it ever happened. No, I get it. And and I guess there's – I may have to have you back again. I I know I got into some of this last time. But I I may one day want to parse out with you the difference between intuitions – Feeling states, motivational states, cognitive distortions—you can do a lot of teasing of these things out because yes. there's lots of stuff that our brain is doing that we sort of experience as one thing. But you can start to, you know, you can start to parse out attentional mechanisms and mm-hmm. uh, uh, saliency and, and all kinds of stuff our brain's doing that we experience as our gut <laughs> you know yep. do do that you know yep. uh but that's a, that i think will have to be a, on another day uh i'm gonna have to wrap this up i really appreciate you coming in again it's as always just a pleasure to talk to you and so fascinating i feel like i feel like we covered some really important territory today and it was yeah it was on my mind and I, I knew you'd have something important to say about it and uh i think you've done that so i appreciate it where would, where would you like people if they had to pick one place to follow you where's that one place
2: well, since we talked about the Pro Truth Pledge website, I would encourage people to go to ProTruthPledge.org and sign that, and they can find more information about me and the work I do there. But ProTruthPledge.org, make commitment to truthfulness, encourage the politicians and folks in your family and friends and social network to do so as well. ProTruthPledge.org.
0: And, and let me just pile on that and say tell people that when you make a commitment or say something out loud or tell another person or say something publicly that you want to do or you commit to doing, you're more likely to do it. So uh, there's not no reason for this. It's not just uh, an empty platitude. It, it's it's making a public commitment. And even though, even if you don't believe that has dramatic effect, it, it, does. it does. We actually
2: did peer-reviewed research on the Pro-Truth Pledge. Yeah. There are two studies published showing that people who take the Pro-Truth Pledge actually behave more honestly. I'm not within- surprised. You know, for at least a month and likely more on Facebook, on Twitter and social media. So it's an effective mechanism for you and politicians. Go to ProTruthPledge.org and sign it.
0: ProTruthPledge.org. We'll do that. Thank you, Gleb. We'll talk again soon.